from 1 John chapter 2. Wow, that got really loud. 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not in the Father, but of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Hey, it is good to see each of you this morning. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm so glad that Brother Ronnie can be with us. Sister June is back. Tom and Nellie decided to come back home for a little while till they go off on another trip somewhere. I'm glad they're able to do that, but I'm glad they're back home with us. I'm thankful for our visitors that are with us today. We're honored by your presence, and we hope that whenever you're back our way, that you'll be with us again. Have you ever wondered how people do certain things? I know that I watch my favorite sports teams and, and I see someone run a 40-yard dash in just a, a, an amazing speed. As we watch uh, our favorite baseball team, uh, Blakeland and I and the girls, we are Washington Nationals fans. Don't even ask me how that happened. I don't know really, but that's what we are. And uh, when we watch those laser throws from the outfield or we watch a, a steal or amazing stop, I just I look at that and I say, how can a human body be so agile and so strong and so fast? How can they uh, run so far and jump so high? And I wonder about that. And I think about that. But then when I begin to think about something like that, I begin to look at myself and I begin to question myself on my spirituality. I say, you know, I wonder how people do things. And then I wonder when I stumble before God, how in the world I continue to do that? How is it that I make a mistake and it seems like it's that same one over and over and over? How do I do that? I've also wondered about Satan. How is it that Satan can convince me to rebel against the commandments of God? How does that happen? It's not like he's sneaking up on us. We understand what he does in this world. So how does that happen? How do we go about falling for that? Well, I know how he does it. I've looked into the Scripture and I have discovered, just as you have, this isn't a news break, that he does it a little at a time. Little by little, he convinces us that something is okay. If that something is okay, then this other something will be okay as well. Eventually, everything's okay. I can just do whatever I want to do. Look at our culture. Look at our world. Seventy-five years ago, did we have such an abortion problem that we have today? No, now it's uh, politicians are, have written it into our laws that we can murder our unborn children. It's little at a time. Satan doesn't try to 
to come in and just say, look, there's no God in the world. Some people believe that, but very few. He begins to tell us that God accepts certain things, right? That it's okay to do certain things. I know exactly how Satan does it. Do you know how an Eskimo kills a wolf? I ran across this and I thought it was was very interesting. An Eskimo, though he doesn't realize it, uses a temptation that the wolf can simply not resist. Here's how he does it. An Eskimo will take a very sharp knife and he will dip it in an animal's blood. He sticks it outside and allows that blood to freeze onto the blade. When the blood is frozen onto the blade, he takes that blade and he sticks it in animal blood again. He puts it outside and he allows that to freeze on top of what is already there. And he does that over and over and over again. Eventually, he has a knife that is frozen with many, many, many layers of animal blood. So what he does, he goes outside and this wolf that's been uh, causing problems and creating havoc with his animals or threatening his family or whatever the case may be, he takes that knife and he buries it, handle into the ground, the blade sticking up. Well, the wolf being a great predator and a great sense of smell, he follows that smell to that knife. Now at first, here's what the wolf does. He licks it slowly just to make sure that it's okay. He finds out that it is. So then he begins to lick it more, and as he licks this knife blade, and that ice begins to melt, and he begins to taste that blood, he begins to lick more and faster and become more vigorous. Now, over time, he's really going after that knife blade, and what he thinks is his prey, something he thinks is okay. Here's the problem. He eventually licks through all of that ice down to that sharp blade. But by the time he gets there, he doesn't realize something. He doesn't realize he has cut his own tongue. He doesn't realize that the blood he is lapping up, that he is really loving, that he thinks is okay, is his own blood. Why? It's been camouflaged. He doesn't realize it. He can't see it. He thinks it's okay. In fact, that ice has numbed his tongue to the pain of the blade and the danger that is involved. He thinks it's okay. So what happens is, he never realizes it. And he is so involved in what he is doing, thinking that is the right thing to do, that it is too late And in the morning, the Eskimo comes out, checks his trap, and laying beside that knife, buried into the ground with the handle, with the clean blade now sticking up, is a dead wolf. That's how an Eskimo kills a wolf. What does that have to do with anything? That's exactly how Satan causes us to stumble a little bit at a time. This is okay. Well, if this is okay, that's okay. Finally, 
The victim of Satan is hurting himself and he doesn't even realize it. The sin has been camouflaged. And the world just simply thinks it's okay. John described that process to us in our passage read for us. He described it. We're going to break it down. We're going to tear it apart. We're going to look at it. We're going to make some application to our lives today. John described that to us this morning, but he began with a little reminder to the brethren. Now this reminder came in the form of a command. Notice again what he said. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't fall for that. It's not okay to do this and that and that and something else. Now, it's okay to do other things. God's provided for us a beautiful world in which to live. He wants us to enjoy it, but He wants us to enjoy it in the right parameters, within the proper confines of what He has given us. Now, in the three verses just prior to our passage, John is commending the brethren. Notice what he said. 1 John 2, beginning with verse 12, he said, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known Him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I've written unto you, fathers, because ye have known Him that is from the beginning. I've written unto you, young men, because you're strong. And the the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. He's commending them. So why give the command? So why follow that up? He's commending the brethren. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have already obeyed the gospel. Those who have been added to the Lord's church through the obedient and the commandments that God has given. So why give the command? Listen again to what John said. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The construction of this sentence is forbidding the continuance of something that is going on. That's the construction of the sentence. He's commending them for having obeyed the gospel. He's commending them for training their children. He's commending them for being strong in the faith. But people are not perfect and we have to be on guard lest we think something is okay and it leads us to something else. He is forbidding the practice of something that is happening at the time of this letter. In essence, he is saying this, Stop loving the world. Don't go back to that. You've escaped it. Don't go back to that. Just because one overcomes sin in initial obedience to the gospel, that doesn't mean Satan gives up. That doesn't mean Satan says, well, I've lost one. I'll have to move on to the next one. That means he kicks it into overdrive. He says, I'm not going to lose that one. He becomes angry. Because we have obeyed the gospel and now he is focusing on the obedient. Satan doesn't have to worry about those who are not Christians. He already has them. He has to focus on the minority of us who are 
Christians. He wants us to fall. He wants to get us back. When we escape the pollutions of this world, it makes Him angry. That's why Peter warned to us. He said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord, they are again entangled therein, and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. He says, stay on guard. Be careful what you're doing. Don't fall for the tricks of the devil because now he's really going to focus on you. Before he didn't have to worry. He had us, but now he doesn't. Satan is always trying to get us back. That's how he does it. Just like the Eskimo kills the wolf. It has something to do with loving this world and the things in the world, doesn't it? The word love in John's first letter is the same one used, or the same one he used to describe God's love for us in John 3.16. He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word Love is agape love. God loved us in the highest form of love. He gave His only begotten Son. God the Son loved us in the highest form of love, agape love. He had brotherly love for others, but His agape love led Him to the cross, allowed Him to be murdered on that cross because of that high form. And what John is saying, he says, do not agape the world. Do not have your highest form of love devoted to this world, the things of this world, because they are not worth it. This life ends. If we lived a thousand years in this life, that's a short time compared to eternity. John had been talking about the world. But he seems to indicate to me that there is something in the world that would cause us to become disobedient to God. There's something out there, right? There's a problem that exists in the world. So within this command, He warns us of consequence. There's a consequence for being disobedient. There's a consequence for going back to the world after having left it. Now there's something in the world that would trigger in us Lust and pride. What is that? There's something in the world that is the opposite of doeth the will of the Father. There's something in the world that is passing away. There is something in the world that is not from the Father. There is something in the world that is opposed to the love of the Father. So we have to determine what that is. Now John's use of the word world is the same one James used. When he said, and demanded from which we remain unspotted. Don't become spotted by the world. Don't become infected by the world. Don't allow the world to get on you. So how does Satan draw us away from the love of God? How does he do it? He does it the same way the Eskimo killed the wolf. He wants us to follow the same road down which he has always traveled. That's the one He wants us to travel. That same one. 
Now he's going to try to take us down one of three avenues and sometimes he may try to take us down all three of those. Now, what's one way? John mentioned it. The lust of the flesh. What is the lust of the flesh? Now in our English language, lust has come to have a very small meaning, a very limited connotation. What do we think of when we think of lust? Well, we think of an illegal desire for immoral gratification in a physical way, right? Most people tend to think in those kind of terms. But really, when the Bible speaks of lust, it's a very broad term. It indicates several things, not just the immoral gratification, but it describes every God-given appetite that we have. Every single one of them. And every single God-given appetite that we have can in some way be misused. It can become ungodly. It can become exactly what God does not want. And it's common to all people. He's given all of us those kinds of appetites. What about our appetite for food? Our appetite for sleep? Our appetite for the desire to uh, come together, husband and wife, right? We've been given that appetite. There's nothing wrong with those appetites. God gave them to us for a reason, right? But we can misuse them. Such desire could be good or bad. It depends on the context in which we divulge those Appetites. Now I want us to keep in mind, each one of these appetites have been given to all people. So it doesn't have to be wrong, but it can be. When they're satisfied, each, of, each one of these appetites produces some kind of a pleasure, doesn't it? It's okay to enjoy the pleasure God has given us. When we're hungry, we need food. When we eat a meal, what do we gain? Besides weight. Pleasure, right? It's a pleasure. What if we deny that? appetite? What if we refuse to indulge that appetite? What happens? Well, we become weak. We can't carry out the physical things of this life and eventually we just simply starve to death. Right? So we need to answer those appetites. Are there times when eating would be sinful? Is there a time when we're eating and it could be wrong? Well, what about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Paul addressed that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> beginning some, somewhere around verse 20, maybe a little earlier. The church in Corinth, they were coming together to break bread, to observe the Lord's Supper. Well, they had what is, was commonly known as a love feast. We call them fellowship meals, right? Well, what they would do is since the first century, uh, they met in the evening. They didn't come together in the morning. Sunday was a work day, right? It was a Jewish culture. So they, they worked on Sunday. And so they would come in in the evening, they would have a fellowship meal, they would gather together and have supper. Well, what, would hap- what was happening was they were allowing that supper to bleed over into the worship activity of taking the Lord's Supper. They needed to come together, have a fellowship meal, break from the fellowship meal, begin a period of worship. They weren't doing that. 
So while they were doing that, they were allowing people who were poor, people who did not have anything, they were allowing them to go hungry. And if you read that context, it appears to me some of them were dying from starvation. While others were being greedy, they were being gluttonous, they were eating, and they were not sharing what they had with those of like precious faith who were with them. Is that right? Is that correct to do that? No, that would be an instance where feeding the appetite would be sinful. We don't want to do that, right? It would be wrong to enjoy a meal in an idol's temple, worshiping that idol, claiming to be a follower of God. That happened all the time in the first century. See, that would be wrong then to feed that appetite. What about those who do not possess self-control? I'm going to put myself in that category at times, right? You know, I've been working on that. Gluttony. Eating too much. The Bible teaches against gluttony. Notice what the wise man said. He said in Proverbs 23, verse 21, For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. The lust of the flesh exhibits themselves in a way that Paul described in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. We see lust turns into something. People give in to those appetites. We don't want to be a part of those who indulge in the lust of the flesh. Right? That's not what we want. What about those who enjoy sleeping? Am I the only one here that enjoys a good night's rest? No, I hope not. Is there anything wrong with sleeping? Well, only if you won't get out of bed and go to work in the morning, right? We've got to get up. We've got to be active in this world. We have to provide for ourselves and those of our families. We even have a responsibility to help provide for those who are not able to provide for themselves. That's what God wants. Is there anything wrong with sleeping? Well, only if you do it all day. Nothing wrong with that, right? Unless you're working that night. Then you need to sleep during the day, right? But you have to sleep a reasonable amount of time. You can't stay up all night long having fun and enjoying things sometimes that you oughtn't to be enjoying and then just sleep all day. And expect someone else to bring you supper or breakfast. See, that would be wrong. That's one way that Satan does it. He appeals to the lust of the flesh. But what about the lust of the eye? That's the second avenue he can use, or one of the three. When the apostle applied the word lust to the eyes, he did it in the same way he applied it to the flesh. Now the emphasis here was shifted from the appetites and drives of the physical body to that which we see with our senses, our eyes, our perception, right? We see something and we want it. Now, it may be okay to have it, but maybe we don't want to work for it. But we'll willingly accept it anyway. Or maybe we're looking on something that we shouldn't have. Remember, lust is an illegal desire. A man and a woman who are husbands and husband and wife cannot lust for one another. They have a desire for one another, but it is not an illegal desire. Lust is an illegal desire. So we look on something and we say, I want that, but I can't have it. 
but I continue to look on it. I continue to want it. I continue to do whatever I can to gain that lust of the eye. That's a problem, especially in our culture, right? John referred to the lust of the eyes, but notice, are the eyes in and of themselves, are they not neutral? Is it sinful to have eyesight? No more than it is sinful to have a good night's rest. No more than it is sinful to enjoy a good meal. But it can be wrong. It can be wrong when we look on something. Satan will tempt us with that daily. Have you ever been to the grocery store and <clears throat> you go through the checkout aisle? You see all those magazines with naked people on them? Now the world says they're not naked because they have what really uh, accounts to underwear. They say, well that's not naked. Well they're naked according to God's definition of naked, aren't they? They're not covered properly. So who did that? Well, some magazine producer did it, some editor put it out, but who's the source? Satan started that problem, didn't he? Satan began to cause that problem using what we see with our eyes. Now, we have a couple of examples where that caused the downfall of someone. Do you recall Achan? Achan in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, he looked upon some things of the spoils of Jericho. He saw a Babylonian garment that he liked. He saw a wedge of gold. He saw some silver. What did he do? He saw it. He wanted it. It was an illegal desire. God said, don't take those things. But he did. Lust of the eye. What happened? He lost his life and that of his family. Does sin only affect those who participate? No. Sin affects the innocent. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, they have caused many to lose their souls. But let's not forget the boastful pride of life. That's the third way that Satan does it. How does he get us? How does he cause us to stumble? Well, he'll use this boastful pride of life. Pride stimulated by earthly possessions, by stature, by power, by authority, by things of that nature can cause a problem. <clears throat> Is it wrong to be wealthy? No, certainly not. Is it wrong to have authority, to have power, authority? Is that wrong? No. Christ has authority. He had authority while He was on earth. Is it wrong to run a company and be the authority in that company? No, not at all. But how do we use the boastful pride of life in a way that's not proper? We become puffed up and arrogant. We try to live to sustain something that is just simply not going to last. We begin to look at self. The words chosen by the Holy Spirit to capture the nature of the sin John addressed is very important. The word life denotes the means of supporting or sustaining or having those things that we need. Now what would that include? Food? A house? Furniture upon which we relax? Uh, things that bring us enjoyment. Uh, we may have a boat. We might have other things. Is that wrong? Well, not in and of itself. So what does pride mean? We're talking about the pride of life. Mean, pride means self-confident, a boasting pride. I did it. Everything I've got, I attained that. 
through my own hard work. We talked in class this morning about Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, look at this great Babylon that I created. Do you remember Herod in the New Testament? He began to be prideful. What happened? God struck him dead. Worms ate him from within. Pride. The pride of life. I created. I gained through my own power those things that sustain life. Who sustains life in this world? If we talk to the writer of Hebrews, he says, Christ upholds all things of this world by the word of His power. Christ does it. How does Satan do it? How does Satan cause us to stumble? Exactly like the Eskimo killed the wolf. Just a little at a time. Now we have two great examples of Satan using the road on which he walked to tempt someone into leaving God's love. Let's go back to the garden. Let's notice that fruit hanging on the tree. Eve came to see that fruit. We see that it was pleasant to look upon. That's lust of the eyes. It looked like it would be good to eat, lust of the flesh, and it would make you wise. Pride of life. She gave in to all three of those. Her husband gave in to all three of those. What happened? It brought physical death on them and all who would come after, and it brought the possibility of spiritual death. Thank you, Satan, for destroying our world. Thank you, Satan, for causing us to lose our souls. Thank you, Satan, for causing young children in this world to have terrible diseases. Thank you for causing destructions of nature in this world. Thank you for turning our lives upside down, for tearing families apart. Thank you for that. We ought to despise Satan. And it ought to help us to resist him. Don't let him win. He is a terrible person. Now the difference in Adam and Eve and our Lord in the garden or our Lord in the wilderness is vast. He had fasted for 40 days. Satan shows up. He says, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Matthew chapter 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's what he said was written. Lust of the flesh. He takes him up to a high mountain and in just a moment of time he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. You fall down and you worship me and I'll give you every one of them. Lust of the eyes. You will only worship your God, your Lord. Right? Isn't that what our Savior said? He took him up onto the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. He said, throw yourself down. Is it not written that the angels will care for you? And you won't even dash your heel against the stone. Pride of life. I'll prove to you I'm the Son of God. It is written, don't tempt God. See, there's a vast difference. Adam and Eve succumbed. Jesus did not. Satan uses three avenues. We need to keep in mind he is the agent behind our destruction. Let's not let him off the hook. Let's lay the blame where it ought to be laid. No sin ever originated in God. Not a single one. They come from the world. Satan is the God of this world, meaning he is in control of the sinful things of this world. Now, he doesn't have control over us. 
absolute control at all. He is restricted in what He can do. But He is the source of every ungodly practice in this world. John gave a reminder. He said, don't follow the road on which Satan trod. And then he talked about the result. This is our final point. What was the result? What's one result? This world's going to expire. Coming to an end. And all of these things are going to end with it. In fact, it's passing away as we speak. Entropy. That's a scientific fact. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything's winding down. Everything's getting old. Everything's getting weaker. We're not, we're not getting better like the evolutionists say. I'll be 47 in December. I don't feel like I did when I was 27. Why? I'm getting older. I'm getting weaker. I'm winding down. We lose people we love. Why? They're getting older. They're getting weaker. They're winding down. That's the process of nature. This stuff is going to expire. All the things in it are going to expire. But you know what? There's going to come a time when we are no longer going to be faced with the temptations of this life because things are going to expire. Right? I want us to notice the rich fool. He found out that was true. He was much like Nebuchadnezzar. He looked out and he said, Oh, all these great things that I've provided, Luke 12 verse 20, was the answer to that. The Lord wasn't impressed with him, was He? The Lord wasn't impressed with all His hard work and all the things that He created. He asked him a question. He said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which you have provided? Don't lose the irony in that statement. The enjoyments of this world will expire one day, but the faithful, we're going to live everlasting in eternity. That's what we want. That's what Satan doesn't want. So how does that happen? Faith in Jesus that He is who He said He was. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. Okay, I understand what Jesus is all about. I understand He came to the world. He died. He gave Himself. So what's my response? Repentance. I turn my life around. I turn toward Jesus. Acts 3 verse 19. Repent and be converted. Live a lifestyle God wants. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That brings me up to the point of salvation. And the final point of salvation is exactly what Ananias told a praying, fasting, crying, weeping Saul. Arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. How do I call on the name of the Lord? Through obedience. That's what the scripture says. That's how Satan does it. That's how Satan wants to keep us from the group in which we want to be. That's how Satan does what he does. Just like the Eskimo killed the wolf. Just a little at a time. Don't fall for it. But John reminded us to stop loving the world. He told us the road down which we must not travel. And he talked about the results. Look, we want to be in that group that gets to heaven. We want to defeat Satan in all that he is about. We can choose death or we can choose life. Let's choose life. Let's choose faithfulness. Let's give ourselves to God. If you haven't obeyed the gospel plan of salvation like we just talked about, faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living, 
Don't leave here today not in a covenant relationship with God. And we can study more about that if you wish. If you've done that yet you've become unfaithful, Satan's winning, and he's winning just like the Eskimo killed the wolf. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, please do that as we stand and as we sing.